You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. While the rest of the guests wandered the deck of the beach club beneath an early evening midsummer sky, taking pinched, appraising sips of their cocktails to gauge if the bartenders were using the top-shelf stuff, balancing tiny crab cakes on paper napkins while saying appropriate things about how they'd really lucked out with the weather because the humidity would be back tomorrow, or murmuring inappropriate things about the bride's snug satin dress, wondering if the spilling cleavage was due to tailoring or poor taste, a look, as their own daughters might say, or an unexpected weight gain, winking and making tire jokes about exchanging toasters for diapers. Leo Plum left his cousin's wedding with one of the waitresses. Leo had been avoiding his wife, Victoria, who was barely speaking to him, and his sister Beatrice, who wouldn't stop speaking to him, rambling on and on about getting together for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. It was July. Leo hadn't spent a holiday with his family in 20 years, since the mid-90s, if he was remembering correctly. He wasn't in the mood to start now. Cranked and on the hunt for the rumored empty outdoor bar, Leo first spotted Matilda Rodriguez carrying a tray of champagne glasses. She moved through the crowd with a lambent glow, partly because the setting sun was bathing the eastern end of Long Island in indecent pink, partly because of the truly excellent cocaine wreaking havoc with Leo's synapses. The bubbles rising and falling on Matilda's tray felt like an ecstatic summons, like an invitation meant just for him. Her sturdy black hair was pulled away from the wide planes of her face into a serviceable knot. She was all inky eyes and full red lips. Leo watched the elegant weave of her hips as she threaded her way through the wedding guests, the now empty tray held high above her head like a torch. He grabbed a martini from a passing waiter and followed her through the swinging stainless steel doors straight into the kitchen. Cynthia Dupree Sweeney lives in Los Angeles with her husband and children. Her new book is The Nest. Thank you for joining me, Cynthia. Thank you for having me. Cynthia, this is a novel that once again speaks to the power of the family. A family in itself is a story. And when I read the title, I just thought of a bunch of knots. And mm-hmm. in a sense, this book is a series of knots that are slowly untied mm-hmm. throughout When did you first meet the Plum family (laughs) yourself? Um, Well, I have met uh, people who are like the Plum family at various points in my life, including uh, while I was in college waitressing at a country club. Uh, And I lived in New York City for 27 years. So certainly I observed people like the Plums who had wealth at one time in their lives, great wealth, and and have have lost most of it, but still aspire to live, you know, sort of a life of, they don't want to be genteel, but they want things that they don't have to work for. You know, uh, this book has a huge cast, and I think you do a great job of introducing this to them, and then teasing out their backstories. And in a sense, this is a, a, a novel where the plot is the revelation of who the characters are as much as what they do. And 
when you were creating this this big family, did you just sit down? Okay, I've got there's the the four siblings and mm-hmm. and map it out from there. I did start with the four siblings, and what happened was I was in my last semester of graduate school. I went back to get my MFA at the low residency uh, program at Bennington. And I was in my last term, my thesis term, and I had been working on a short story uh, about adult siblings, and which was the precursor to The Nest, and is in fact pr- pretty much the first chapter. And my thesis advisor, the wonderful writer, Brett Anthony Johnston, uh, I, I gave it to him and said, this story is not working, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix it. And he said, I don't think it's working because it's not a story. I think it's the beginning of a novel. And I think this is your first chapter. And you just keep going from here. And you just start, continue to rotate through these voices. And what I found while I was trying to figure out who the people were was that I kept pulling in other voices. I kept wanting to write in other characters' heads. And um, that's probably the mistake of a beginning writer. (laughs) (laughs) I I I can't imagine ever choosing to write in ten points of view again, um, <laughs> and and there were a few others that got cut, but um, but it was fun, and I and I think, and I think for a beginning writer, it was a great exercise in how you flesh out character. Let's talk about the the siblings, and we'll start with the first one we meet, Leo. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a saying that in writing, every character, you know, always has to change and mm-hmm. stuff. But in real life, people don't change that right. much. That's, that's right. They don't. Um, but I think what happens when you have people in your life who don't change and you need them to change you have to change so somebody changes so that recalcitrance that you know the inability to change does cause change somewhere it Mm. maybe causes Mm -hmm. change um one of my writing in fact i think it was brett again who used to say um the, the character doesn't have to change in the story but if the character doesn't change, the world of the story has to change. And so I think I think that's what happens in life, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you get locked in these patterns with people. But if you are pursuing healthy relationships, that often means changing the relationship if the other person just can't change. Well, Leo is somebody who, while he's an adult and a sibling really, in a sense, just hasn't gotten past the teenage years. No. Yeah, no. Leo's one of those guys who probably peaked in high school. You know, like he was good looking and all the girls loved him and smart. And he sort of rode that charisma into his early 20s and got lucky and made some money and but didn't really have this the what doesn't he have? He he doesn't have the will or the discipline to to really earn what he wants. Uh, things came to him very easily, very quickly. Yes, when things come easily to you, 
you never really learn the skill to apply yourself. Right. And I think when they come easily to you young, that is a very, um, you know, again, living in New York City, I have friends in all different uh, all different careers and all different kinds of jobs. And certain jobs really yield a lot of money very, very quickly. And I've seen people handle that beautifully and gracefully and generously. And then I've seen people not handle it well at all. And, and, and it is, I think, it's cha- I think it's challenging to get a lot young and easily. We also hear about, um, in, in the opening, in the reading, we hear a little bit about B. Mm-hmm. And am, am I wrong guessing that maybe B is your stand-in? And, and you know, she's really not because, um, you know, it's it's true. I think I think readers hate hearing this, but maybe because I didn't like hearing it before I was writing fiction from a writer. But I really, really feel that if you put all four of the plums together, you'd probably get me. And there's a little bit of me and all of them. And I feel... Well, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I feel a, a, a kinship and a love for B because of the person she is in the book. And, um, and I, sh- I share, I guess I share some of her frustrations, but my story doesn't... Um, mimic hers at all you know Mm -hmm. my personal writing voyage or whatever doesn't doesn't mimic hers but um but she was one of the most she was one of the people I like to write the most it's a it's a lot of fun to read all of these people I I get the sense that even the characters who are not so uh, wonderful to with Leo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you liked all these characters, and I think that's really, really, really important because even if the characters are somewhat despicable, if you like them, the readers are going to like them as well. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And in fact, when I finished the first draft of the novel, I realized that some of the characters were flat on the page. And and in every instance, the reason was because I didn't love them enough. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of... Um, trying to skewer them a little more and I was judging them and and I had disdain for some of them not Leo he for some reason he came to me very easily and I loved him from (laughs) minute one and I don't know what that says about me but um, but some of the other characters didn't come to me that easily and uh, when I went back to fix them I I realized that I had to love them, that I really had to love them. If I didn't have affection for them, the reader wouldn't be able to either. And the, that's not a very satisfying reading experience. I, I mean, I love books with unlikable characters, but you do if you don't have, if you only have disdain for them, it's it's not particularly enjoyable. I mean, I can think of instances where someone goes really, you know, Martin Amos or something like that. Like he can make that fun. He can really make that fun. But um, but that's a that's a hard trick to pull off. I I love Melody, and, and her husband uh, Walter. They mm-hmm. are uh, they're a little more Kmart than the rest of them. They are. They clan. are. They really are. Uh, and they they have t- twin daughters. And I think one of the things I I 
I liked most about this book was that there aren't many books that really look at the uh, relationships between adult siblings and their mothers mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. American families. Usually it's the, the mothers and the children or mm-hmm. the fathers and sons and or the children or, or right. maybe the adults. But I think that you do a great job of showing us a chunk of America that doesn't get written about very much. I'm fascinated by adult siblings, and I knew I wanted to write about them. And I think part of that is because I grew up in a really Italian, uh, really Italian Irish Catholic environment, and everyone who I grew up with had tons of siblings. There's four in my family. I'm the oldest, uh, and I thought our family was small. And and I've stayed friends with many of these people, and many of the people in my life now, kind of oddly, have many siblings. And navigating those adult siblings relationships is so complicated. It just gets so complicated as. As everyone ages and parents age and people's lives take different paths and, you know, those those childhood patterns are there forever. And when mm-hmm. you have to play them out as an adult, you know, when the argument isn't whose turn is it to load the dishwasher, <laughs> but like, hey, mom needs help and I've gone the last three times and what are you two doing it's it's so fraught. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the the childhood relationships bubble up essentially unchanged into adult responsibilities that don't map well and often right. cause lots yeah. of problems or sometimes hilarity or sometimes yeah, yeah. just no, exactly. <laughs> I mean, to me. Um, you know, the thing I'm interested in and what I really think the book is about is that we all inherit something just by being born, and that's a place in a family narrative that we have no control over. So you are just, you're born into someone's story, and you have no control over who the other characters in the story are. And you just become the oldest or the youngest. And then eventually you sort of, you know, you just acquire these other labels. You're the smart one. You're the funny one. You know, you're the jock. And... There comes a point, I believe, in most people's lives, uh, to differing degrees, depending on how simpatico your family is, that you have to decide what to keep from that family narrative and how to reconcile it with the story that you want to write for your own life and how to move forward. And it's sort of that moment that I was interested in exploring. And that's what I really think the nest is. I think their inheritance is this story that they have both acquired, but certainly taken a hand in crafting. And now that the story's starting to fall apart, they really have to decide what what their story is. Well, that's so interesting. One of the things I'm very interested in is the way humans uh, create stories for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think a humans, I think, are a narrative species. Absolutely. And, and we exist by virtue. If I ask you who you are, you're going to tell me not I'm 5'10", mm-hmm. and uh, Brian Hare, you're going to tell me that you, I've done this and I've done mm-hmm. that. You're going to tell me a story. Mm-hmm. And I love that these characters are all so immersed in one another's stories and all trying to rest control, keep control of their own stories while immersed in somebody else's story right. over which they have no control. Right. And that's... <laughs> Uh, that brings us to to Jack and Walker. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So tell us about creating these characters. 
Um, I, I lived in the West Village where Jack and Walker live. I lived in Jack and Walker's apartment for a while. Uh, okay. <laughs> and that's actually where my kids were, both my kids were born. But um, not literally in the apartment, but <laughs> what, while, while I was living there. Um, and I, when I started writing about Jack, I, you know, I knew that his that he was a self-centered being and that he was looking out for himself. But I also, I just, I, I, I don't, Walker, Walker just came to me as, um, you know, the, the compassionate, like do gooder kind of guy. He's very sweet. and He's I, very sweet. And, and we really like him, genuinely like him. And that yeah. that's a, takes a steady hand as a writer to make somebody sweet but not too sweet. Did you have to ratchet him back or pull him, push him forward a little bit? I did, have to, I did have to ratchet him back a little bit. I, I, I played around with his goodness and sort of where <laughs> it came from. And, yeah, I didn't want to pour it on too thick. Um, but I think of Walker as one of those people who uh, really sees good in the world. And sometimes those people end up with people who aren't good because they, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they honestly want to believe that everyone is going to rise to most occasions, you know, and that's, and that's Walker. Now, you've talked a little bit about The Nest. That's the title of this book, mm-hmm. and I think we're not giving anything away if you can tell us a little bit about what exactly is The Nest. Well, The Nest is a sum of money that the Plum siblings have been told by their father uh, while he was alive and when they were quite young uh, to expect inheriting when the youngest sister turned 40, which would mean they were all going to be in their 40s. And now, he's <laughs> let me stop you right there yes. just for a second. Uh, we put a codicil in the trust for our house that oh this is fascinating <laughs> that if we were to you know get wiped off the face of the earth by virtue of a you know teleported away right. by aliens my hope right um, <laughs> that the kids could not sell the house till they were 40 oh that's fascinating <laughs> so. um but i think it's smart and mm-hmm. i think you know i think leonard senior had this his philosophy was that okay, I've made this money. I'm proud of it. I'm gonna le- I'm gonna leave some just to make their lives a little easier when they're older. At the point at which, um, certainly they will have made their own, you know, good financial decisions, and maybe this is just gonna help someone send send a kid to college or take a nice trip or something like that. And um, he dies unexpectedly and fairly young. And that money gets invested in the stock market right before the second housing bubble. And it just becomes a sum much vaster than anyone expected to get. And they have all watched this money increase in value. And they've started making plans on, you know, based on what is a much more massive amount of money. I think think they were all supposed to receive a half a million dollars. That's what they... That's what they're expecting to receive. That's what they've made plans on receiving. And and that those plans go up in smoke, so to speak. So, <laughs> You know, I, I, 
back in 2007, I was doing some articles about books for NPR. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed back then was uh, just an influx of these novels. There was a fantasy novel by a writer named Jeff Vandermeer. Oh, Uh, yeah, I know his work. Yeah, and it was a really interesting novel because it was set in this city and all of the machinations of the novels involved were wrapped around the economy. Mm-hmm. Then I looked at this piece of kind of a thriller slash horror fiction sort of piece by T.C. Boyle, mm-hmm. which is about mm-hmm. identity theft. Right. And it was the right. same kind of thing. Yes. And it struck me that we were heading into a time when that was like the birth of a genre of fiction, right. not unlike science fiction right. or horror fiction, about economics. And I think right. that this book is, in many ways, the apotheosis of, well, of and that I mean, genre. And those books, I mean, if that was 2007, I mean, those books were quite prescient because certainly in 2006, <laughs> everyone thought, you know, the money train was not leaving the station. Right. and. And when I started The Nest, I was really thinking about uh, the financial crisis of 2008 and how many people I knew who, you know, were still fairly young, but who watched, you know, these massive financial investments that that aren't real. Uh, you know, I mean, if you, you have to, I think, if you know anything about the stock market, be honest with yourself about the difference between a number on a spreadsheet and actual assets that you've cashed out. And, you know, they watch the value of their accounts or the value of their property, uh, sometimes the value of their investment properties, you know, just completely dissipate. And we're understandably panicked. And it's not that I don't have empathy for any of that, but I was astonished at the entitlement that accompanied that disappointment. Like, I deserve like I deserved that. I made plans. I deserved this. Mm-hmm, I deserved mm-hmm. this money. I deserved that that retirement count. I was already, I was all ready to retire in five years, you know, when I was fifty-two or something. And now I'm gonna have to work. And and this is unconscionable. And it you know, it was just it really planted a seed in my head about um, money and entitlement. It's just, a, it's a very, very interesting topic to me. Um, I think I'm old enough to have grown up in a time when your goals were were sort of just to maybe have an, uh, a life that was a little better than your parents, you know? Um, mm-hmm. my, my parents, my dad went to college, my mom didn't. She got married young and she became a homemaker. Uh, they really wanted all of us to go to college, and we all did. And they wanted us to all have jobs where we didn't have to worry about money. But nobody thought um, that we should have that plus plus a lot more, plus an artistic passion, plus a... You know, it's just it's very interesting <laughs> how sort of generationally expectations for what what parents want for their children has really, really changed. Um, you know, for my grandparents, it was just that their kids weren't blue-collar laborers. You know, that was... That that was the big hope. That was good enough. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. a, that's interesting because we've... It's like we've invested not just our money, but 
our in our self image. Our not only does our money have to accrue, our, our self image has to accrue all this interest in. Yeah. At the you know if if I worked in the computers, my son's going to be a computer artist, and he's right. going to have you know right. have this freedom, and. Uh, or just the way we curate our lives, mm-hmm. you know, aesthetically. Like I'm obs- I love watching movies that were filmed in the 70s and early 80s in New York City because everyone's apartments look exactly the same. <laughs> Everyone has, you know, like wicker furniture from from Azuma, which is like the precursor to, you know, Pier 1. Everyone I mean no one n- now it's just sort of like everything around you is is you're promoting your own personal brand, you mm-hmm. know. Here is the color I choose for my apartment. Here's the type of very expensive furniture I have. Here is the, my baby only plays with these types of toys. They're from Sweden. They're all wood. You know, I mean, it's very, <laughs> but it's very different from what it was like when I was growing up. And it's just interesting to me. Well, I, I think that the way these ideas play out in the book is really, it's both fun and scary <laughs> and it really gets us involved and were you kind of like there's the plotting of what happens to the characters and the plotting of where the money goes and what's going on with the money and I don't want to talk about too much mm-hmm. about where mm-hmm. what's going on with the money but when you were writing the book did you know where the money was going to be and where the characters were going to be or was that kind of uh, coming I off didn't, the cliff? I didn't I always knew where the money was going to be mm-hmm. from the beginning. And I was pretty sure about Leo's story, the arc of Leo's story from the beginning. But everyone else, I just sort of had to feel my way through. Now, beyond the the main, the four stars to this, and I got to guess that somebody snapped this up for a miniseries, I hope, because that's where it would be. I, I, I actually sold the um, film feature rights to Amazon Studios just just a couple of weeks ago. Well, so, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And um, and my my pal Jill Soloway, who produces Transparent, is producing. Oh, wow. So, that yeah, that was kind of a dream. Um, I can see why. Yeah. 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 Uh, Beyond the the main stars of the movie, and this plays out like a movie, mm-hmm. head, you have a great kind of gallery of other characters who, mm-hmm. who follow us. And, you know, I love one of the things that's interesting or that's fun about reading this book is that a character who we might think is not going to play a big part grows to be a big part. And mm-hmm. that's really a, a it's so such great discovery as a reader. Oh, and good. I'm thinking of Stephanie. And, oh, yeah, 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 and, yeah. And I think that that um, when did you discover these characters, or did, is this what happened when you went back to retool some of them? Um, Stephanie was all was always kind of there from the beginning, and and I think I you know again I'm trying. I don't want to give anything. I don't want to give too much away. I, some of the some of the secondary cast of characters came to life because this book for me was always very much about New York City, and I didn't want it to only be about privileged people in New York City. Mm-hmm. I wanted one of the things I love about New York City. Um, in the years that I lived there, I left in two thousand and eight, and um, this is becoming sadly not quite as common. But how 
you know, all different types of people, all different types of, um, you know, on one block, you would have people who are all so different economically, uh, their backgrounds, their religious affiliations, their ethnicity. And it was important to me that, that it feel, that the book feel recognizable to people who didn't just live in the privileged streets of New York. I, I was going to comment on the New Yorkness of this novel. It's very, very enjoyable. New York is a, is a big character in the novel. Mm-hmm. And when you were crafting this character, I mean, since New York has gone through changes horrific and wonderful, mm-hmm. uh, how much of that, you know, did that uh, change your uh, experience and exploration of the the human characters? Um, I don't, you know, I left New York in 2008 and, and the book, the book is, you know, it's probably takes place around 2011. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, I didn't really have to get into the most recent changes, you know, under Bloomberg, who's, was a, a really spectacular mayor in a lot of ways, but also really has allowed sort of rampant um, r- real estate growth that serves the wealthy. Uh, you know, New York has become a very, very difficult city to have a nice life in unless you have a great deal of money. Mm-hmm. That was certainly starting to happen while I lived there, but it wasn't quite as pronounced as it is now. So I didn't have to deal too much with that. But I think that, um, you know, I tried to speak to the changing New York in the way that the siblings think about their past and their lives and their choices. Because when you live in New York, so many of your choices are completely tied to money mm-hmm. and real estate. I'm sure I'm sure San Francisco is the same way. And um, so, but I just tried to keep it you know, to people's lives rather than making big points about New York. Well, I think, too, when you were talking about the specific places and stuff, uh, the Grand Oyster Bar, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really love that that scene there. And parties and family dinners, mm-hmm. we've all had to experience these, you know, in general, they're not a lot of fun. No, they're not. They're not. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I think you do a great job of, of pacing these scenes and uh, having a lot of fun with the parties. And that that's an interesting thought. You know, I never thought about that because I, it's nice to see my sister and my in-laws. And I mm-hmm. really like that. I'd kind of rather prefer just hanging out with them right. rather than the, the whole party atmosphere. but. Uh, when you were plotting the parties and, and laying them out through the book, did you like have a uh, a spreadsheet? Okay, maybe we gonna we're gonna have a party here and a dinner here. Not for that. I mean, I do. I I I like visual visual aids when I'm writing. So <laughs> I had you know huge bulletin boards leaning against my bookshelf with color coded post it notes uh, based on whether the characters were plum or non plum <laughs> and and then i had flashbacks so i had i you know i had a i had a color system working and there were points when i'd have to say okay we've got too much blue i need to 
start adding some pink here, but um, I didn't think about I didn't think about the party. I mean, it's hard to write a party scene. Um, well, yeah, because you have, and this gets to I think one of your amazing strengths as a writer, um, in terms of the closely observed third person perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, generally, that's done I think usually with you know a whole chapter and bang, you lay it out one after another. You do this like you go from one to the other like in a paragraph with great ease and complete uh, the readers are able to follow it. That's an amazing talent. Well, thank you. It didn't it didn't just come out that way. <laughs> um, I had to I had to do a lot of work in revision um, of weaving the story better. Because when I wrote the first draft, I was, you know, concentrating on certain people's stories for blocks of pages. Mm -hmm. And when I got to the end, I saw that everything really needed to weave together better. So that a lot of that happened in revision. And um, yeah, uh, it, it, it was it was. File under Both fun easier, and challenging, yeah. Easier said than done, I'm guessing. Uh, one of the... Th- uh, this book has a great deal of feel of uh, wistfulness. And I think that there's a real uh, power to the feeling of regret. Uh, mm-hmm. Regret is one of the most interesting emotions we experience, yeah. and you play with that a lot. Yeah, well, um, uh, I... I'm thinking about uh, Paul and B, and yeah. and uh, Paul's obscure literary journey. Well, I think you know. I think uh, most of these characters are are in early middle age, so they're in their forties, and I think that's a time in your life when you sort of look around and think, "Oh, this is my this is my life. Like this this isn't you know this isn't necessarily." I'm not just sort of on a road somewhere trying to figure out where I'm going and what's possible. This is this is kind of where I am. And and I think that you know, a certain type of person will spend a lot of time trafficking in regret. And and um and certainly those are some of the people in this book. And and then of course you know, the fact that I didn't start writing fiction until my late 40s and and my regret, or my, um, I would say my uh, grappling with whether or not I regret that, mm-hmm. certainly infuses, you know, some of the stories of the people in the book. You were talking earlier about having characters from different economic mm-hmm. strata, and I really loved Tommy. Oh, what yeah, a, me too. What a wonderful character. Yeah. Did it, was he based on somebody you met? Seems He's like based on guy. lots of people I know. I mean, I know Tommy. Like I said, I grew up in an Irish-Italian, um, you know, environment. Of course, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I know Tommy. I know Vinny. I know those guys. Uh, uh, and I love them. I knew people who were in the fire department in New York City. I... Um, you know, I, I knew some of those guys who worked cleanup afterwards and and I just I have a real affection. 
you know, salt of the earth is the phrase that comes to mind. And I, and I'm afraid that sounds condescending. I don't mean it in any condescending way at all, but I just, um, you know, sort of those people who work for the greater good, they have a sense of duty and responsibility to mankind, to their country, to their city, to the people around them. Um, I always want to hang out with those people. They're fun. They have like a sense of joy and and pleasure and play that that seems different to me from people who take their lives a little more selfishly, you know, and seriously. So, yeah, so I I love I mean, I I love Tommy too. One thing that's People, you're a parent. How do you mind if I ask how old your kids are? No, no, they're um, one just turned nineteen and the other's twenty one. Wow, uh, you look far too young. To have oh well, thank you. But uh, such adult children. Uh, one thing about parenthood, it that's definitely not apparent to people who are not parents, is that parenthood is permanent. It's a permanent state of being. Yeah. Your children never, ever, ever grow up, do they? Right. No. Um, and that's part yeah. of this book, too. Yeah. Yeah, they don't. And um, but again, you know, I I look at, you know, I look at my kid. I have two boys. They're friends. They get along great. Um, but, you know, there's patterns that work in our family, too. And and I think you never escape that. I just think you never escape the pattern of your family. Mm-hmm. And and part of that is whether you're the parent or the child. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Now, um, in a novel like this, uh, part of the, the joy of reading it is getting to know the characters. And I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about pacing the revelations of, of these people because we meet them kind of in media rest or in the party and all those mm-hmm. sorts of other stuff is going on. But then we, as we get to know their backstories is where they came from. It's just so much fun. And there's so many gripping scenes where they say, Oh, now I get it. <laughs> did you, did you have to pace that out? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is, it's hard to do. And, um, and again, when I finished the first draft of the book, one of my early readers said to me, you have too much in flashback here you're not writing in scene and and so a lot of what I had to do was uh take things I was writing about things after they happened which I don't know if that's if that's just a common writer tick or if it's just common to me but I I sort of would think of a scene that was that had happened and I would recount it in the character's head after it had happened, which is not that interesting to read. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, so a lot of that work was going back and saying, and writing things in scene and saying, well, no, I'm not, don't describe, <laughs> don't talk about the person remembering something that happened, actually write it, you know, in scene. And I think I shied away from some of those scenes because some of them are hard, especially when they involve more than one character. Uh, but that was a that's a lot of you know a lot of that stuff happens in in r- revision you're just you know you're you're trying to look at the pace of the thing and and especially when you're juggling so many characters 
it took me a long time to figure out, have, you know, have I left this person hanging for too long? Like, you know, I don't want to come back and have people go, wait, who is that again? You know, so it, it was just a lot of shuffling around and a lot of um, timeline charts and lists, making sure that I didn't have things out of sequence. And uh, yeah, it was. But that's I mean, that stuff's fun. Like sort of when you have when you have the story out mm-hmm. and then what you're doing is getting it the best way you you know can get it that that's the fun part well one of the things i think that uh, i'm going to kind of return to this theme of family as story and story as family because Mm -hmm. that's really at the core of this book and i think that it's so much fun to uh, get engaged in this story and to understand that plot doesn't have to be a lot of stuff happening although a lot of stuff does happen mm-hmm. i mean what's really uh, the the driving thrust in this book is just getting to know these people and kind of seeing them on the page play out you know do what they want to do do they uh, some writers refer things uh, suggest that you know their characters kind of take over their roles does that happen for you no, and I wish it would. <laughs> um, no, it most certainly does not. Um, I I think that one thing that that I think is important when you're writing, especially when you're dealing with a group of characters, is to put pressure on them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. And, and that's what the device of money does in this book. Oh, yeah. You know, it puts it really is a vise on everyone's lives and actions. And and so, you know, that part, once you put money pressure on people, you've pretty much got your plot. <laughs> well, like that's, you know. Absolutely. Are they well, going to get it or are they not? Are they going <laughs> to have to, you know, make this sacrifice or not? So, so that part. Um, but the rate of revealing information was was hard. Was hard. It was hard to figure out, and I went back and forth a lot, up until handing in the last draft to my editor after they bought the book. There were, you know, conversations we had where um, my editor absolutely correctly felt that I was withholding information for too long, mm-hmm. and and you know you, you want to. Uh, certainly as a writer, you you really want your reader to keep reading, but you don't want them to get frustrated. So we had to negotiate some of that. And um, and I and I was happy whenever she pointed out that there wasn't really a good reason for someone not to know something, you know, until chapter 17 that they could probably know in chapter three and that would be fine. That was um things really did sort of tight like they tightened up when I started taking out some of that mystery oh you mentioned money and I was just thinking what a joy money and finances are because they're so easily (laughs) screwed up and concealed and kept secret and kind of glossed over it's just a cornucopia of trouble that I mean people get in every day and that's one of the things that's so appealing about this book is the problems that all these people create are things that I will—I absolutely refuse to admit that I've yeah, <laughs> ever well, been listen, involved in such a thing. We all have 
there's ev- probably every emotion that's loaded goes around money. Mm-hmm. Shame, guilt, pride, uh, you know, jealousy, envy, probably all the deadly sins and virtues. <laughs> you, you you can <laughs> I was just you know, thinking, you yeah. can hang on money and 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 people's behaviors around money are really fixed in really strange and really personal. Mm-hmm. And when you think about as a culture how much we reveal to one another, money is still such a remote subject for so many people. That's true. You know, that's uh, I, many people would rather describe to you what kind of underwear they're wearing oh, than to, than to yeah. tell you what how much they yeah. made last year. Yeah, exactly. Or how much they paid for their house. Yeah. Or, yeah. And it's very, I mean, it's very interesting. And this whole idea of leaving money for your children is also a very fraught topic. And believe um, me, it is. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, you know. And you know. and and I am, um, but I had a fascinating discussion with my German publisher over the past few weeks, where it's really culturally expected there mm-hmm. that parents will support their adult children pretty far into their adult life. And and sort of help out as as things go on, and um, I don't you know so it's so there's cultural assumptions, and in a country as big as this one, those cultural assumptions can vary w- w- so widely and wildly depending on where you live, and um, yeah, so there's I mean it was a really it was there was a lot there to work with. There's still a lot to work with. Yeah. Uh, what, what are you working on now? I just I'm only in the very very early stages of what I hope is a new novel, and I can't I I can't even I couldn't even be articulate about it because I'm not sure what it is yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you mentioned earlier that we we can expect to see a TV series, or will it be a film? It's 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 supposed to be a feature film, mm-hmm. and so, but I have no idea what the timing of that is. That well, I will look forward to it. I've been speaking with Cynthia Dapri Sweeney. Her new book is The Nest. Thank you for joining me, Cynthia. Thank you for having me here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.